Welcome to the Drive the Bid podcast episode four, brought to you by autohunter.com and classiccars.com. Quick business out of the way, autohunter.com, our presenting sponsor, is an online auto auction, seven-day car auctions for all cars, vintage and interesting. Not necessarily vintage, but vintage and interesting. You can set a reserve. All fees are paid by the buyers, except your listing fee, of course. And we do now offer professional photography as a perk to using our site for selling your car. Big perks. Good stuff. As we talked about the entire last episode, photography is important. So now we actually actually offer photography for a listing for your car, provided there's a photographer in your area, of course. But it's included with your listing fee now, so that's exciting news to help market the car and sell the car. So welcome to the show, gentlemen. How's it going? Sitting here today, my name is Brad, and I'm sitting here with Jeff. Yep. And Derek, as normal. What are we going to talk about today? I think we're going to let Jeff lead the conversation here a little bit because this is his his uh, his passion subject here this week. He's been chatting about it a little bit. That's one way of looking at it. Um, so basically what we're going to be talking about today is how sort of vehicle specifics, little nuances with various vehicles can actually affect the value and might what your outcome might be in terms of selling your vehicle at auction or otherwise. 100%. We, we had some pretty extensive chats over the past two episodes about presenting the vehicle visually. What adds value? What hurts value? What is the best way to present your car to the online auction world? Obviously, in our case, we're talking about autohunter.com. So we had a pretty extensive, pretty extensive conversation discussing that. Um, the best outcomes for your pictures, for your videos, how to take them, where to take them, what to do with them. Now I think we're going to have a deeper conversation about what actually makes the value of the car the value of the car. Beyond what you might just think. Beyond the flashy, ooh, I want that. What actually builds true value in a car? Right. Especially because I feel like we do have a lot of people that generally ask, you know, where do you think my vehicle will end up? And then maybe even have questions about how we came um, to what vehicle we've typically found, right? So I feel like this is one of those things that kind of elaborates on, hey, this is why your vehicle's worth where it's at. This is why the market dictates this or that and kind of determines everything. Yeah, we can kind of have a conversation about where the price comes from as far as the price that's determined for a reserve price. Mm-hmm. We can have a conversation about that, but I think we want to talk about more overall what builds the value to the car, what brings the car's value to where it is, what makes example A worth more than example B, and example B worth less than example C, for instance. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, I figured the best way to do this would be to start with probably the most obvious and then work our way to the more niche things. So, i.e. vehicle condition, which seems like that would be obvious and straightforward to most people, but I think there's a little bit more into it um, than most people think. So, obviously, there are tools out there that help you get a rough idea of where you think your car is, things like price guides. Um, Obviously, both Haggerty and Hemmings offer all sorts of different resources where you just put in your make and model, some of your basic um, features and options for the car, and then you can kind of jump into it that way. I, I think one of the more important things to think about when you're thinking about value of a car is not necessarily a price guide, because a price guide is just that, it's a guide. Mm-hmm. You need to look into what 
cars similar to yours are going for. And that's where this condition conversation comes into comes into play. Mm-hmm. Because you might see a car the same as yours. Let's use a car that one of us owns, for example. I know, Jeff, you have a 1984 Porsche 944. I do indeed. So we can take a look at Porsche 944s and what they've sold for recently and say, okay, this Porsche 944 sold for $12,500 last week. Why did this car sell for $12,500? Mm-hmm. That's your number one car now. That's that's the car. That's the first one you've seen. That's your baseline until you see another one. So you can take a look at that car and say, okay, my car has shinier paint. My car has less dings. My car has less dents. My car has nicer seats. My car has less miles. My car has more miles. Who knows? And build and subtract value from that point. Once you've looked at more than one 1984 Porsche 911, and maybe not necessarily just not 1984, but cars that uh, in the same generation, 944, of course, in the same, in the same generation of car, the same, you know, basic options. I mean, stuff might change year to year, but the 944 is the same from what? 1983, 1986. So 82 to 85 and a half would be the first cutoff for the early cars. And then 82 was the first year. Hmm. Um, sorry, 83, yeah. Oh, okay. 83 to 85 and a half are the early cars, so to okay. speak. So yeah, you would look at all the Porsche 944s sold between those year breaks in the past six months, one year, to kind of see where where your car is at and what builds the value based on the conditioning. And that's just conditioning, and that's what we're talking about first. So what's a... What's a good point you think about conditioning as far as what is an important thing to look at for conditioning, comparative, comparative conditioning, I should say. Um, so the what I guess how I would start that is obviously most people will break the categories of condition into like, you know, the same thing you see everywhere, which would be like fair, I guess, good, um, best, and then concourse, right? That's kind of the general practice for that okay and i think the most important part there would be to be honest with yourself because like you mentioned depending on what sales you've seen might skew your views of certain things but Correct. you have to be honest with yourself for where your vehicle actually sits i feel right. most often people t- uh, tend to overestimate um, where their vehicle actually sits myself included sure um, we all want to think we have the best example of something, right? Right. Even exactly. if we know we don't. Right. Right. You you want it to bring more money, right? Of but, course. Um, at the end of the day, you know, it's important to do your research, right? And as you said, you can find specific examples. If your car looks exactly like another car in terms of maybe paint fade or condition of what parts you have, what all is working on the car, then boom, you go, okay, my car looks just like that one, same color, same whatever. That sold for 5000 Okay. I guess my car is worth 5000 Correct. So I, I think we see a lot of that. We'll get somebody call in and say, hey, I just saw one of these sell on Auto Hunter last week. Or I saw one sell at Bear Jackson last week and it went for $112,000. So I think mine is worth $112,000 now. Mm-hmm. And then they'll send the picture of the car and it's leaking oil and mm-hmm. has a ding or a dent and isn't the concourse resto with the one that's sold for 112 and then right. you have a very hard conversation with that person being like well it's difficult to tell you your car is not as nice as that car because you can't use that words you have to come across a little different with it and say you know maybe that was a high watermark and yeah that it's, partic- the, it's the potential yeah the potential might be there but there's 
there's little things that you wouldn't think on the surface would make a big deal, but they do, right? We've seen some vehicles that maybe, um, while it might drive the same, um, it might be a perfect condition, all the bushings are fresh and everything still in the car might drive beautifully. If the undercarriage isn't clean with all the factory stickers and like it's maybe got a little bit of surface rust on it in places, that vehicle will not sail the same as a vehicle that has that pristine, clean undercarriage. Yeah, that's a number one versus a number two or three car. Exactly. Yep. That makes a huge value difference. And it doesn't seem like much, especially for something that you might never see. Correct. Right. But it is something. Right. Like the number one concourse cars, I think that's one of the things that people need to think about pretty heavily. Most cars in the market are not a number one car. Most cars in the market, if you put them on a lift and looked underneath, you would see dirt, you would see an oil leak, you would see surface rust, you would see some worn out rubber parts just because most cars are used and driven and they yeah and that's okay rightfully wear out yeah it doesn't we, mean the car's bad cars. right the number one condition car isn't a standard this is what the car is worth it's for that particular example that's been taken to the next level yeah and you you know you see cars that have had you know extensive uh, body work done you know they've been repainted they've got new wheels new tires but yeah that is that separating factor like everything might look shiny and glossy on the outside but you go underneath you know, you might see, yeah, surface rust, things that are much older than the a rest number, of the exterior. A number one car is fresh out of the restoration booth. Hasn't been driven. Might not even have been started. Mm-hmm. It hasn't been rained on or wet or scuffed or scratched or barely sat in. A number one car is a rare vehicle. And again, that's why most cars are not number one condition. So when you look at those value guides and you say, oh, a number one car is $112,000. Sure, a number one car is, but it takes another 40 or fifty thousand dollars sometimes in restoration to get to that point so the fact that your car is you know maybe a number two and the delta between a number one and a number two might be 20 percent it's going to be a huge number because that number one car is not a common thing so that's that's an important thing to think about when you're looking at those values from some of those places where you get your car values number one is rare right and it belongs well, in a museum, guys. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's important. I would say most places have descriptions. Fair would obviously probably fit the majority of cars. I would say in probably in a decreasing order, right? You could say fair goods on, and onwards, it would be in a decreasing number, sure. right? And the number of cars that fit that category. Yeah, generally, you'll see one through five or five through one, I guess, mm-hmm. is the, some some guides use four, but four or five is is generally the number and four or five, depending on what guide you're using, being the full-on project needs everything hasn't been run in 30 years needs a restoration and number one being it's done being restored to original factory specs and hasn't been used at all like fresh off the assembly line or Mm -hmm. better right now the other thing i wanted to say in terms of vehicle condition is there's things you can do without immediately changing the vehicle in terms of spending a bunch of money on a paint job like re finishing the interior, whatever that is, there are some things you can do to help with your vehicle condition that might improve um, the overall value or in terms of things like that, which I wanted to say was things like critical maintenance or important things for the vehicle that keep it running and driving. So things like engine out services, IMS bearings get mentioned frequently for Porsches or like timing chains and belts, right? I think timing chains and belts are a huge one overall, especially belts. Right. Right. So, so some people don't like to do maintenance on their cars, right? That's just not what they're interested in. Mm-hmm. And so in those cases, if you can do something as simple as like a belt service that might cost $1,000 if you take it somewhere sometimes, that can be a huge upsell because the way they see it now is they're now 
able to drive a car that's in driving condition. It doesn't need anything. 100%. More inclined to buy it that way. Yep, 100%. So that's one of those like little subtle things that maybe isn't appear on the surface, but can be a little bit of a value adder or even just help you sell it a little bit faster. Yeah, I think later on we're going to talk about some documentation. And uh, just to skip ahead a little bit, that documentation is important, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to rubber parts like belts. Absolutely. Especially when it comes to timing belts, which are a critical part. Yes. Because while not every, but a lot of cars have interference engines. Mm-hmm. And if your timing belt fails... That it's it's rebuild the motor time because your pistons and your valves have become intimately involved. Uh, So we we don't want that. (laughs) So yeah, that's an important thing. It's it's less of a concern on a chain car. Um, Most chain cars, the interval is either so high or not. Not your lifetime of ownership. Yeah, you can check for slack and make sure everything's good. But belts are pretty important. And like I was saying, I think we're going to talk documentation later on. But that's one of those things that you might not be the most mechanically inclined person out there, mm-hmm. but if you're trying to sell your, we can go back to your example of a 944 again, because engine? they have an interference engine and they have like a 40,000 mile timing belt, right? Uh, yeah, I think, I think the factory says like 30 something. Okay. But yeah, most people from what I've read is like, they recommend like 20,000. Oh, really? Oh, that's yeah. even lower than I thought. That's a Yeah, it, it depends on, I guess, how far you're willing to take it. I know some people check it regularly and say they have hit as far as 40,000 with no issues. Okay. And so it depends, I guess, on your confidence and then how well you think you installed it. And so it just kind of varies. Oh, I don't know. Installing is either yeah. right or wrong. Could be a silicone yeah. lottery thing as well. Maybe your belt's just built different. Yeah, maybe. Or <laughs> the other problem is we're talking about cars that are 30, 40 years old. And how old is that part you put on the car? Right. Is, is it a fresh belt off a fresh warehouse or was it in new old stock somewhere oh, in a 125 stock, degree? Yeah, but so, sometimes you're not going to know. How are you going to know? It depends on the car. I guess yeah. they built 12, you might not have a choice. Exactly. But anyway, if you can't do that, if you're not confident in doing that, having that documentation of having somebody do that is a huge value add. It's not going to bring your car from a number two to a number one mm. or even a number three to a number two, but it's going to build the value to the buyer that this service is done. I don't have to worry about it until it's next interval. Mm-hmm. I don't have to spend any more money when I get the car delivered to me. It's already ready mm-hmm. to go. And as you said, you can just turn the key and drive. Hopefully. I mean, these are still old cars, so right. yeah. maybe not, but hopefully. Okay. So going on to the next most obvious thing I would say would have to be... One second. I want to circle back again. Oh, an important, okay. Another important thing is tires... Not only tread depth, mm. but age is an important factor too. And the age, depending on where you live, is a even larger factor. Someone living where we are in Phoenix is not going to get 10 years out of a set of tires, even if the tread is fine, whereas somebody living on the East Coast might. So I think that having tires with proper amount of tread and a date code within the last few years is also a huge value add because tires are expensive you may get more out of a new set of tires before you sell the car than you would spend to get those tires just because of that. Hey, it shows me that this car is maintained and turnkey and turnkey. Exactly. Yeah. Just as we've already said a couple of times, the turnkey factor is important. And I think people would be surprised by the amount of cars you see with old tires, whether that's tires being sold somewhere, or even if you go to your local cars and coffee, if you just sure. start te- checking day codes, I think you'll be surprised. And, Again, it's a lot of situational issues make tires go bad. Right. A tire sitting in the sun in Arizona is going to last a lot less than a tire sitting in the rain in Seattle. Right. 
a tire sitting in a climate controlled garage is going to last a lot more than a tire sitting in a non-climate controlled garage or driveway. So there are other factors determining that. But if you can show you have a nice, fresh set of tires in the car and it's one less thing to worry about. I mean, again, here we are in Phoenix. All of us have seen every day at least one or two cars on the side of the highway with a shredded tire. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And it's because the heat here is so intense and it eats tires up. So it's one of those things you need to really pay attention to. So, okay. Yeah. I would say just a last touch on tires. The last thing I would say is even if it's a project car, if your tires hold air, that's also a big deal, right? It's just that much easier oh, to go onto a trailer. Yeah. Um, it gives more confidence that the car is in a better point for restoration. So even if it's not something that you're going to be driving immediately, just the fact that it I looks have, ready. I have this one rule with cars. Mm-hmm. I, as you all know, and some of the listeners might know, I don't drive cars that are number one or number two cars. I drive cars that are patinaed and older, and that's kind of my thing. Mm -hmm. But I have always said that, and this is true for a project car too, like you bring up, you can have the world's worst paint job and the world's rustiest car, but if your tires and wheels are shiny and clean, maybe not shiny on the tires, but if they're clean and black and your wheels are shiny, it makes that car look a hundred times better. And it shows that the car is cared for, even mm-hmm. though to the casual observer, it might be a piece of garbage with one foot in the grave. It's or one tire in the grave, I guess, but it's not because it has those clean tires and it gives that like almost sense of pride to that kind of old, otherwise maybe garbage car. Right. So I always, I've always said that this, the right set of wheels and tires obviously makes or breaks a car. Mm-hmm. But when you have kind of a car that's not, maybe pristine, a really nice set of wheels and tires really sets it off. Well, and, you know, the thing about that, too, is, you know, a, a fender, obviously, it has a certain function, but it's not as integral to the performance and the, the safety of the car as the tires, you know? No, of course. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why, again, we always say that clean, fresh tires and wheels, maybe not fresh wheels, but clean wheels, they they show a level of care and maintenance. Not having four different mismatched tires, making sure tires are all the same manufacturer, the same tread pattern if possible. You know, even if you can't get the same tread pattern, at least the same manufacturer. Right. Just make it make it look like it's more well cared for because it is more well cared yes, for. Yes, just because the tires themselves are rated for thirty five to forty five thousand miles doesn't mean they'll last no. nine years until you hit forty five thousand miles. Yep. And it's the same same goes for timing belts and hoses and all that good rubber all stuff. All the rubbery stuff. And again, that's something that's more essential here in the desert where it's dry than mm-hmm. it is maybe somewhere where it's not as dry, like a Seattle or a Boston or Maine. Or right. Those. Yeah. yeah places coast. places yeah. where it doesn't hit 120 in the summer. <laughs> it's not even necessarily the 120. It's just the baking in the sun and the dry air. And there's just arid, terrible does bad things to rubber. Well, according to the internet, you can just throw deodorant on it and it will be okay. Take your deodorant stick on your belt. Stop the squeaking. Hmm. Just kidding. Don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> they do sell belt conditioner at yes, the store. Yes, that is a thing use, that exists. Yeah. You can pick up in your local uh, auto parts store. That's I'd hate to use my deodorant and then go to put it on It'll, the next morning and what, have the, car parts in look, the armpit. It, the internet says it's a thing. So clearly sure. it's a thing. Okay. That sounds like a deep, dark side of the car <laughs> web. Is there, is there, yeah, is there a dark web for automotive? Oh, I'm, I'm sure. sure like, like things not to do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. Probably. All right. The next one um, being the most obvious. Or actually, sorry. Are you ready for this now, Brad? We can move on. Yeah, okay. sorry. Unless I think of something else. <laughs> you will pause for a second. Okay. The next one. Wait, 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 wait. No, I'm <sighs> just kidding. All right. That's it. I'm leaving. Where's the door? All right. <laughs> the next one would be the most obvious 
maybe would be via like vehicle features and options, right? Yep. What did your car come equipped with from the factory and, or maybe what does it have now, right? Obviously with a lot of older cars, we're seeing vintage air almost becoming a staple in terms of air conditioning. It's fairly inexpensive to add it now. So, right. Yeah. Everything's getting very good. The aftermarket is on top of its stuff. So I guess really um, the most obvious probably being rarity. So there's not a whole lot to say there. But clearly, if there was a lower production, not always the case. Some things yeah. can be rare and not valuable. It needs to be rare and desirable. Right. So I know certain cars, um, we've had some Starfires that people wanted to know if the uh, antenna still came up and down. Okay. And so that's those cool. were one of those things that's like one of those, you know, not needed necessarily as a luxury option. And most mm-hmm. people might replace a radio. But like if it works, that could definitely be a value adder, right? Yeah, I think that you need to remember that desirability is more important than rarity sometimes. Yes. I mean, correct. think about a Fox Body Mustang or a third gen Camaro. They're very rare, but both models were available with naturally aspirated, carbureted four cylinders. Right. Nobody wants those. They're very rare, but they're not desirable. People right. would much rather obviously have the V8 option or in the Mustang yes. case, the turbocharged fuel injected four cylinder at least. Yes. So, but that's, that's just one case of many where rarity does not equal value. Another place is rare cars in general. Uh, if a make or a model is kind of obscure, it doesn't necessarily mean automatically that the car is going to be worth they something. They may or may not have got on a business. People need to know the company exists in order to build value. Right. So, well, in confidence too, because they might be wondering, okay, well, where am I going to get, get parts? parts. For this? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. First car that comes to mind that you see at cars and coffee cases is like a Brickland SV1. Sure. Yeah. Very, like, they're very cool rare. looking, yeah. but like not worth kind a of a reason yeah. they're not around. Well, I I have that 1971 NSU. Nobody knows what an NSU is. Right. I've never seen more than one in my life. It's not some blue chip collectible because nobody knows what it is so nobody cares right so right it's fine yeah so rarity doesn't always do research yeah rarity doesn't always equal value but at the same time on a common thing the rarer versions of it if they're more desirable if they're more like instead of the four-cylinder mustang we're talking about a 60s mustang with a you know a big block versus a small cobra block. jet yeah. Oh, yeah cobra jet or cobra jet with a drag pack or mm-hmm. you know a hemi car versus a 383 car obviously that in that case rarity, rarity you know, builds value. a lot of value because mm-hmm. it's an option that people want right so. um i guess the next obvious would be things like engines or maybe factory performance options like first things that come to mind obviously being like copo cars um you yep. mentioned like cobra jet stuff right obviously sure. there's cobra jets um mach ones have their rarity level but then there's a few different things that were very rarely available even on the already limited number of production for mach ones that even up the value just a little bit more right yeah and this is going to change a little bit i think as you go through different generations of cars i think what we think about when we think about cars with options and values a lot of times is 60s muscle cars right because everything was a la carte mm-hmm. you could check off each individual option box so you'll have the guy selling his 1970 challenger that says well, this car is one of one in this color with this engine, with this transmission, with power windows mm-hmm. and the AM FM radio and the wood rim steering wheel with a sunroof. Right. Makes it one of one. But if you take one of those options away, the car is now one of a thousand. Right. So it's, it's, yeah, that's the kind of car we think about when we think about these specific things. And right. touching on uh, on the numbers, I wanted to, uh, I should have said this earlier, but as far as, you know, we, we love it when, you know, people in their, their notes say, oh, well, this is one of, 
385 produced for this model year. But it's especially helpful if that number you get can be verified. Sure. You know, instead of like, oh, well, my buddy told me this is one of this many. Like, it helps if we can look it up and find yeah. it in more than one place. And then, you know, that helps us put that into the listing with confidence. And- I've never seen another one. Well, somebody has. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the, obviously the most uh, probably obvious example of what you're talking about there, Derek, would be Marty Reports, right? Marty for, Reports for do Fords. a good job of yep. saying this car is one of how many with this AC option and this color yep. and blah, 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 and keeps narrowing it down, right? Yeah, Mopar actual- people are pretty good about it. The Marty Report right. is huge. And mm-hmm. uh, like PHS, the Pontiac historical yep. society is another good one unfortunately other car manufacturers weren't as good at keeping records right like chevrolet is not nearly as good especially well, or gm in general other than pontiac especially well, in the united states I was gonna say, you mentioned pontiac yeah. but specifically there was a car that ran through our site that the phs records couldn't even really tell you how many cars were built in that color and it was right. a single year color before pontiac right. got rid of it and so unfortunately sometimes you just don't have a choice yep nope you have to go on desirability at that point more than rarity i guess right well and the other thing is is that a car from the 60s that exists today restored in its original color isn't exactly always common either because when these Mm -hmm. cars weren't worth you know the money they're worth now somebody would take i think you're probably talking about that salmon colored pontiac we did you're right yeah yep so it's kind of an odd color um it's super cool in the lens of the past. It had some other things that we'll bring up later that sure. contributed to it. But at some point in like 1975, somebody probably wouldn't want a salmon-colored 1964 GTO. They would have been right. let's paint this thing red, right? Because the car was a you know fifteen hundred dollar car, and they want their red muscle car. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of an interesting thought about it too. Right. Maybe you had all the color options in the world, but at the end of the day, sometimes when we're picking up some of these cars for ourselves, we might have something in our mind, right? We might be like, oh, yeah. I remember this car, the car for watch you. color. Yeah. Yep. Right. And so sometimes those things get changed. Um, not obviously for, for the sake of driving for what you want the car to be, which I would argue is one of the most important things at the end of the day. And that's what I always say. Buy the car you want, not the car they tell you to buy. Right. But also at the end of the day, if you're restoring a 1964 numbers matching GTO and it's never been changed maybe find a different car. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> That's just me though. What do I know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, monetary wise, probably saving some money too, right? Like if you're going to go full LS swap on a car, it might be cheaper to buy a regular Firebird and not a Transit. And that's one of the things that I've also always said, if we can, I guess, sidebar this conversation, I hear the complaint a lot that people are priced out of the muscle car market. Mm-hmm. I can't afford a muscle car. They're too expensive. I don't have 60, 70, 80 grand. Right. You don't need 60, 70, 80 no, grand. No, you don't. Yeah, you can buy that base model version. And if you're going to build a hot rod anyway, you know, buy a $10,000 70 Chevelle with no motor in it. Yeah. And be in it for less than 20 for a car that's probably better than a fully restored one. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the probably the biggest muscle car market is probably Mustangs. You guys probably agree right yeah one most common and, cars sure yeah and you can buy the a argument whether they're a muscle, a muscle car or not well i'm not getting into right now okay, that's okay. Well, yeah okay whether it's a secretary's car or not right um pony car muscle yeah, car mm, well 60s v8 cars what we'll say how's that sound <laughs> point is perfectly if you, non-committal <laughs> <laughs> if you wanted a let's say maybe a rough example or a project car for a mustang you can get them for like eight thousand ten thousand dollars all day long right and so the main coupe this is obviously non-fastback no crazy special options but that's a great starting point to turn it into the car that you want to turn it into 
Yep. Yeah, you, don't need to start, you don't need to start with the Shelby to build a hot rod. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Well, and even across, you know, cousin, uh, corporate sibling manufacturers, like, you know, the there was the Cougar to the Mustang, and then, you know, the Chevelle had so many different cousins under the GM umbrella. Yeah, you know, absolutely. That, mm-hmm. that might be an option as yep. well. It's same general styling, but, you know, not the exact same Price Priced car. out of a Mustang, buy a Cougar. Exactly. That's, yeah. I mean, other than the super special edition Cougars, they are worth a little bit less than a Mustang. And that's, again, now we go back to rarity. If you have mm-hmm. a a Cougar XR7 with a 420-whatever, yes, it's going to be a big dollar more, car, yes. then that's different. But mm-hmm. yeah, if you're priced out of Mustang, go for Cougar. That's going to be our new phrase, I think. Yeah, no, I End every episode. Remember, if you're priced out of a Mustang, buy a Cougar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and even, yeah, like the engine options too. It's like you look at like C3 Vets and obviously, you know, big block cars have a certain value, but if you go to a smaller engine, it's still a V8, you know, that might be a little more... Um, entry friendly you can you can still find and this is one of i think the bargains of the again is it a muscle car corvette how long you'd say this brad well no but you can still buy a early 70s c3 and spend you know 20 grand mm-hmm. oh easily yeah it's not easily um i think those cars on average i would say are probably 15 to 20 for the early uh, the early ones are more than 15 but definitely you can get well, them not, in the 20 not, range. Okay, not 60s cars, but like you can probably get into like 70, yeah, the 70s. 73 um, for that price. And obviously the, the values differ in other places. Okay. Another thing to think about when considering the value of a car, we're talking about C3 Corvettes right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about the Porsche 944 earlier with the early car versus mm-hmm. the late car. That's a huge thing to think about too, because while the C3 generation Corvette you have from 1968 until 1982. There's a mm-hmm. wide variety of values in between them. Very wide. Because you know your 1968, 1972 cars are going to be worth a different amount than your 73 to 878 cars because the bumper designs are so different. But I would argue the 73 in itself is kind of a unique car. It is because it's the it is, last of. But that it holds body. on. It holds on a bit to the value of the earlier cars. I may be a bit, you know bias because your family owns one it's, yeah, 73 yes. yeah well my family owns an 80 and 80 and i'm not biased mm. so uh, yeah <laughs> i'm sorry to my father who's listening but he knows <laughs> i don't love that car i don't hate it it's a good looking car it's just it's not the most exciting car um anyway moving on sorry dad the <laughs> 68 to 72 we'll say then which are the chrome bumper c3s right will always carry a premium over any of the later cars mm-hmm then you have your 73, which is your weird year with the chrome front split rear bumper. And then you have your 74, where it's urethane bumpers front and rear. And this kind of goes the same through any of these cars that had some major shifts that different versions of them are always going to be worth more than others. On the topic of pointing out condition differentiators, I think it's also important to point out that with the looks changing, um, engine options declined significantly fast. Uh, it was 70s uh, by American 74, cars. Yeah. I think your only option was the 350. Yep, and it was a not very high horsepower 350. It was the low, yeah, lowest yeah. of the two. I think it was rated at like 220. Okay, 
pretty low. Yeah. And they, I think they got down to like 180, didn't they, by the end yeah, of the 70s, had, early 80s? By 73, 74, they only had two engine options in, in total, and it was two 350s. And then yep. by the 74, I think it was just the one, the low. Yeah, and then one, like the, the 80, 81, model. 82, they were like 180, maybe 200 horse. Mm-hmm. They're pretty low. Yeah, they got but all But all emissions. cars were. It's not yeah. the only car that's... I'm going way off topic again. The only car of the era that kind of maintained some of its muscle car attitude, I think, would have been the 6.6 Trans Ams. Oh, yes. They kept which a also bit didn't put out any horsepower. They put a lot more than most cars. Yeah, which <laughs> is a lot more than most cars. Car. Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's another car, though, too. The Camaros and Firebirds of the 70s. The mm-hmm. same thing in 1970 is the same car as in 1982, but there is so many changes in between that there's wide value changes. Thinking of the Camaro specifically, an early car, chrome bumpers, small back window, round taillights. You know, a, you're not going to find a nice one for less than 25. Right. But then you can buy a 74 to 77 with the aluminum bumpers mm-hmm. still in the teens. And then, you know, they go up again a little bit when they get to a Z28 from 78, 79, 80, 81. Mm-hmm. So you just got to remember that the version of the car has a lot to do with it too so and well by version i would even argue special editions so for example back jumping back to corvettes they're such a great pinpoint because they've been around forever and they're just all sorts of varieties but corvettes and the right, wild on them because it's all over the place right there's a corvette for like every budget if you have five grand really and want to buy a car you can buy a corvette yeah. if you have 105 mm-hmm. grand and want to buy a car you can also you buy can a also corvette. buy a corvette <laughs> yep yeah you're exactly right um in millions even right some of those oh for sure i'm i'm not talking about the outside ones but that goes back right. to the engine option and rarity value right you know your copo 427 mm-hmm. whatever 68 corvette is i think there's be, only one corpo corpo corvette right I well, think one it was a paint option yeah something like that yeah whatever uh but uh, <laughs> anywho um what i wanted to make was special editions right so looking at the later gen vets for the most part the the um post 73 cars Okay. All hover around the same point for the most part, but then all of a sudden you get to seventy-eight yeah, pace and car. yeah, and the pace cars, and you get the anniversaries, which are silver, and yep. those in good condition can generally go for a few thousand, not a ton, just yeah. a few well, thousand a good, more. A good low mile seventy-eight anniversary edition car is a little bit of a premium. You're right, I right? Mean, I've seen them pop into the low thirties, right? So, and but so it's, again, not a huge money car, but a significant value bump over a, a yellow seventy-eight. Right, so. it's just another thing that's important to consider, right? Mm-hmm. So even if your 77 is silver, it's not the same as a 78 silver anniversary. Right, and the same goes for 82 because there's the collector's edition cars in 82 mm-hmm. as well, which had the gradient striped on the side, and they're probably the most desirable of the 82s. Not that everybody wants an 82 because crossfire injection, but... Right, again, the whole point of this is to consider that just because a car looks similar, you want to dig into that and make sure it's similar because yep. there could be some subtlety, subtle differences that just may not pop out and seem obvious yeah yeah i Uh, think my whole point with this whole entire conversation if if i can break it down to a stupid level (laughs) is the value of the car while important is important to make sure you don't overpay right you don't want to pay too much for a car because god forbid you have to sell it or even worse something happens to the car you don't want your insurance payout to be less than you bought the car for and when you go to sell the car you don't want to lose money so Mm -hmm. It's important to make sure that you're not overspending for the car you want. But like I've said a thousand times, and we'll say a thousand times more, 
if it's the car you like, find the value for that car. Mm-hmm. Do you want a urethane bumper 75 Corvette? You're not alone. People like those cars a lot. Mm-hmm. But make sure you're paying for a 75 Corvette and not a 68 Corvette. Right. Make sure you're not just getting to that, oh, it's a C3 Corvette. I saw one sell for 45 grand. I'll give this guy, he only wants 32. It's a deal. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's a $20,000 car. So we need to make sure that we take all of these factors into consideration. Right. And another variation of what you said, maybe you got a fantastic deal on the car um, sure. for, what, for what it is, right? Now, if it's a little bit rough and you need to put a little bit of money to get back you know, to the condition maybe you want the car to be in, you need to accept that maybe the amount of money it would take to get it into a pristine condition, you might not be able to get back from the car at the end of the day. Um, Because sometimes that labor might not pay off. And so that becomes a question of whether you're perfectly happy driving the car as is, Mm -hmm. or if maybe you put in the amount of money that you think you can still get back from the car. Those are all things to consider. So even if you want your car to be perfect, where the car sits value-wise, you may not be able to get back at the end of the day. And that's one of those things where it's it's hard to make money restoring a car. Right. You either need to get a killer deal on a car, Mm Mm-hmm. Or had know how to do almost everything yourself. It all comes down to what are you trying to get out of the car? Mm-hmm. Is this something that you want to keep forever? Is it just the car you've always wanted? You know, I I've heard it said many times: buy the best example you can afford. And there's certainly some That's truth in that. Rule. I think you could do a whole episode about that. Yeah, we can use my cars for example because I always buy the worst example I can afford, <laughs> and I regret it forever. <laughs> but you still you still have them. I do. I, I have a different outlook on cars. That doesn't work for everybody, but we'll, uh, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll do a deep psychological dive into my brain at some point, but it's a scary place, so let's try to stay out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it just ties into the idea of you know you, knowing what you like, what you want is just so much of it. And then from there, just doing your research, being realistic yep. about it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And yep. I think, Brad, I think you've accepted, you know, your, your lot. My forthcomings? Your cars. Yeah. <laughs> my, 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 my shortcomings is what I'm trying to say. Yes. <laughs> so to wrap that section up, that got sidetracked a lot. Um, vehicle features and options, right? A little bit more specific to some of the older cars where some quality of life options and things were maybe uh, stuff that you had to pay extra for versus now, like you mentioned, Brad, yep. a lot of new cars tend to come with a lot of options from the factory as sure. all the base models even. And it's funny because some of these 60s cars, a low option car is worth as much as a high option car because it's rarity factor. Yeah, so if you have a, a car with a, a big block and a manual, but then it has no AC, no power windows, no mm-hmm. radio, and it's you know basically a stripped down drag racer from the factory, that's actually oh. going to add value. I'm so glad you're saying this. Um, yeah, you are, you're actually even heading into our next section. Oh, good. So move on to the next section. Yeah. And I'll, get, I'll get back to that. So the next section in terms of vehicle value, which is kind of an interesting one, it's my favorite topic, I think, that I picked out here, which is uh, vehicle originality uh, or having an unmodified vehicle in some cases or modifications. And so this can go a bunch of different ways. Um, obviously, I'd, I'd say the first one you start with is original parts and paint. Well, there's two there's two definitions of the word originality. Well, so that's why I put unmodified in there. Yeah. You probably that, explain that. And that needs to be more clear in mm-hmm. the automotive world. I hear a lot of people say, oh, the car is 100% original. And in my brain, that means the car is wearing the original paint that it wore when it rolled out of the factory 40 years ago. It means that the interior has never been changed. The top's never been fixed. 
you know, the engine has never been taken out. Everything is original. The only mm-hmm. thing that's changed is the oil, the gas, and the air, and the tires, and the tires. Right. You know, and, and maybe some wear items like brake parts and whatever. Some right. maintenance things have been changed, but it means that everything else is original if you're 100% original. But what they really mean when they say that sometimes is it's been rebuilt using all the original factory style to like parts. stock condition. Yeah. It's rebuilt to the way it was built from brand new. And that's not an original car. No. That's a restored car. Yes. And I think we need to, I don't know how we make that distinction more obvious to people, but it, it's, it's, it's a problem wording. in the car community. It's a problem yes. in the English language is where we really, yes. really got to go back probably, to. Yeah. The well, word has too many definitions. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, un, unrestored versus original yes important distinction and obviously original would be worth more than restored although in some cases it doesn't matter when a vehicle's so rare that maybe you know stuff's just not available 100 so that depends but it's an important distinction i guess going into this further really so where let's talk about i guess when that matters right so one of the first conclusions i feel like is you know people want to know when does it matter if your vehicle's original or if it's unmodified or how do you want to keep it? Um, obviously, we see a lot of restored vehicles, and I say that's fair for enjoying the period of the time and mm-hmm. things like that. But typically, what we see is the higher the dollar figure, the more it matters about having an original vehicle. Okay. Right? So That ties in with rarity. Right. It does tie in with An rarity. unrestored or a restored original. Mm-hmm. So a car that's been rebuilt we'll use the Mustang example, 1968 Shelby Mustang, mm-hmm. is going to be worth a significant amount more than a restored non-Shelby vehicle. Mm-hmm. But if you have a, you know, maybe a high option 1968 Mustang Fastback that's still wearing its original paint and its original interior, mm-hmm. it's going to be worth maybe closer to what that Shelby's now worth because the car's never been touched. And just the fact that it still exists in 2022 without having been painted is a huge thing. Maybe the, the values aren't going to be the same, but I'm just, dust here. Yep. yeah, I'm, I'm just saying that, you know, and, and, and then moving that on to an unrestored 1968 Shelby is going to be worth more than your restored 68 Shelby mm-hmm. provided that the unrestored condition is usable and presentable. I think that's something also you have to do. Like we're not talking about finding a car in a barn that's get rotted from the rockers down, yes. rockers up. Yes. All the paints falling off of it. The glass is gone. <laughs> the roof was caved in when the barn collapsed. Like there's a, yes. there's, there's, it's, it's not definable. You just kind of have to look at it and go, it's cool that that still exists as an original car, mm-hmm. an unrestored car. Right. And we can keep it that way. And the value in that car is that it has never been, restored yeah i mean there's a difference between patina and just outright damage Junk. yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly <laughs> right well in, in some of these cases of these higher figure vehicles you can actually do the modifications will be a huge deduction oh to for the value, sure right like if a car has um heritage or other stuff like this like let's say you had an original shelby cobra right those mm-hmm. are typically anywhere from like 1 million to 2 million sometimes sure. or more uh, one of those cars if you decided you wanted to coyote swap it you would destroy the value of sure. that car. and the same thing goes for that 68 shelby we were just talking about you take out the original shelby engine and you put mm-hmm. in a coyote or a five liter or whatever yep. then you've made that car effectively not a shelby anymore right so, so t- just typically in general it seems like the high dollar figure cars generally if you want to get your money back you're better off giving it original i think or restoring it. i think that goes back to sorry Derek. go ahead oh no no uh, go go ahead okay I, th- I think that goes back to our conversation earlier too about like 
priced out of the muscle car market. Mm-hmm. You're not necessarily priced out of the muscle car market. You're just priced out of the numbers matching big block four speed muscle car market. Which you can still buy the regular spec Chevelle and build it yourself because that high dollar, you know, hot rod Chevelle is going to be, you know, say a 70 LS six Chevelle is a hundred thousand dollar car. You can create that driving experience for, a lot less than $100,000. Which, at the end of the day, and I'm sure most insurance companies would agree with me, you don't want to be driving your $2 million car on the road where somebody in their $5,000 car can wreck it. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah. So, at the end of the day, it helps, and you can build the car you want to drive, which may be even better than the original vehicle in some cases. Yes, I I can speak from experience. I have an unrestored car. I have a 1968 Camaro that's mm-hmm. never been restored. It's original paint, original everything, yada, yada, yada. It's gorgeous. Numbers matching, SS, this whole, whole, whole thing. I don't use it as much as I use my other cars because I'm afraid that it will get bumped into and mm-hmm. now I'll have to paint it. And yep. now it's no longer an original car. Mm-hmm. And for me to bring it back to the value that it's at now as an unrestored car, to restore it to a level to be the same value would cost way more than I'm willing to spend. Yeah, and that paint is one of those things that you, it's not really reversible. Whereas like, no. if, you know, I was going to say at the very least, if you're going to make modifications to a car with any, you know, I'm not talking like the, you know, million dollar Shelby's, but like if there's a certain value in it and you just have to make a modification, what a lot of people do, if we've seen it on the site, they'll include the original parts Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're in place. That's a good call. Which, mm-hmm. you know, obviously takes some work, but at the very least, they are there. It's still there. Right. Well, the easiest version of this is wheels and tires. You can change the wheels and tires in a car in 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. It doesn't affect the value of the car as nope. long as you still have the originals because you can swap them back. Yep. Yeah. If you have an original numbers matching 67 Corvette 427 and you're like, you know what? I want this thing to be more reliable with, you know, a new LS6 and you swap in an LS6 and take that original 427 out, then, yeah, guess what? You've just now made that car worth less than it was. Mm-hmm. But if you do the same thing to a 1967 327 Corvette, that wasn't, or actually 67 Bay 350, right? Oh, I'm going to get killed on this yeah, one. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> stupid Corvettes. Um, <laughs> I actually do like them. If you t- uh, So a, a base model small block Corvette, and you take that out and put the LS in it, you may have added value to the car. Yep, especially if it's well done, which, especially which brings up well some done. of these other topics I have here, which you know happens to there are some modifications which don't affect value. So you mentioned wheels. Sorry if you're a wheel fanatic, but ninety nine point nine percent of the time, changing the wheels on a car generally won't affect the value. It may be negative if it's the wrong wheels. Except in my case, where having the clean wheels and tires makes the car look better. Right. Yes. Which which yes, there is such a thing as if tasteful mods. If we're to just help. talking stylistically then yes, changing the wheels will not add value to the car unless the car had really terrible wheels on it when you got it. Right. And so I think the important thing is that some cars will might perform better with the right modifications. Okay. Right. So to go, you know, piggyback off of some of the things you said, Brad. So we see some of these really high end builds, right? So now some of these don't always get the money back that you put into them. But when you start to add things like an Art Morrison chassis underneath your classic car, or you engine swap maybe a car that Mustangs came with a six cylinder, maybe you V8 swap a car, that can Mm -hmm. increase the value of that. And that could be more interesting to somebody because now it's maybe a little bit more muscle than that six cylinder secretary car was originally. Okay. And with the, the, Art Morrison chassis, you get better handling, and it's almost like a quality of life improvement on the car as well. So maybe if it's not I a like Shelby this quality Cobra, of life 
<laughs> I'm, I'm going to use this next time I have to like it's budget something. It's a great word, right? Why do you need to make your car faster? Uh, it's my quality of life. So it, it, make sure I don't die on the freeway. Me, don't you? Yes. <laughs> right. And so it's a quality of life mod. Anyway, why are you building a hot rod? My quality of life. Don't cu- worry about it. Cup holders. And I know some people would probably scream, you're just lazy and shouldn't be drinking in your car, in your sports car, your fine car. Where you're Those driving, people don't live in Phoenix. Well, if you go on a road trip, it's nice to have your water available sure. or whatever. And yep, so no I, question. I need to put a cup holder in my car is what I'm getting at. But another one is safety modifications yep obviously safety ratings have come a long way and now i'm not saying you should put a full cage in your car because that's ridiculous also not as safe as not having a cage because you don't want to hit your head on a cage if you're not wearing a helmet yes that is that can be lethal um it's been proven before but Mm -hmm. um there are even some of the vintage restoration companies uh companies like singer um which restore uh, old 911s now while you know they're probably all right they're certainly not modern day safe and so they'll put things like little reinforcements in the door and things like that that'll help the general safety of the car um and that can be a big deal the big thing with safety is seat belts right seat belts weren't mandatory in cars Mm -hmm. until the 60s if you have a car pre-1963 or so it's not going to have any front seat belts Mm -hmm. at all and no rear seat belts until what 68 i think so if you have an older car and especially if you plan on taking passengers or your family somewhere Mm -hmm. uh, adding seat belts is a cost negative to the car i don't think it adds to the car far as value goes it certainly adds this is what i would argue is the actual quality of life <laughs> um <laughs> preservation of life. Preservation, preservation of life yeah, exactly life, yeah. but it doesn't add or to subtract value and it's one of those things that's understood like hey i mm-hmm. put seatbelts in the car because i wanted to be able to use it with my family mm-hmm. so i think that's right. a totally reasonable thing break upgrades i think that's unless a big one. unless we're talking about again a numbers matching original car i think if you just are building your own fun car to have around you know swapping from a set of drums to a set of discs is a Mm -hmm. huge thing huge and i think the one brake upgrade that doesn't affect the value of the car is changing from a single to a dual master cylinder safety i think if you have a car with a single master cylinder you can pretty much get away with changing it unless we're talking the highest of the end number one condition concourse restoration where it would hurt against you but if it's any car that's driven i don't think you're going to have a huge value detraction for changing to a dual master cylinder i think 65 i think 65 was when they changed mandatory to the dual master maybe even 66 yeah yeah it was it was early 60s at some point but Mm -hmm. the single master cylinder is you know very risky well it's functional as long as right. your brake system is in perfect condition, but if you lose mm-hmm. any one brake hose, and we can go back to our conversation earlier about rubber and the condition of rubber, your brake hoses are rubber. So if you lose one brake hose with a single circuit master cylinder, you lose all your brakes. Mm-hmm. At least with the dual circuit, you can lose one brake hose and still stop the car. <laughs> so I feel like that's probably one of the most important upgrades to any car pre 1960 whatever year that was right and in some cases where if you have a car that maybe gets tracked um, occasionally and that's kind of how you're selling it with some performance upgrades is another thing that Uh, could add value to an extent there are certainly performance modifications that can detract or do nothing if your plan is tracking the car you're not worried about the value of the car that's probably true especially if you've put into the wall once or twice but certain things like braided brake lines that's a huge performance upgrade that I think people would appreciate. Even yeah, if they weren't but doing anything crazy I, with the car. Uh, braided brake lines are a hot topic. Um, the problem with braided brake lines is you can't inspect them for condition because it's a mm. braided line around a rubber line. Right. So if you're buying a car secondhand and you don't know the condition of the rubber inside or how old those braided lines are, it might be a value detraction. So no, I don't think that's a. 
I would say performance upgrades are by far the most controversial. And if you were trying to add value to your car, I would not say all the performance upgrades. I'd say quality of life, things like air conditioning yep. even, um, would add a lot more value because all the time we see it on our site, um, sure. people people ask, um, hey, is there, you know, how easy is it to install AC on the car? Not easy, example, right? but easy. It depends on the car, yeah. right? Um, so we've had some cars that had AC originally, and then it was either removed and is included with the sale or whatever reason, right? So that they're, they're, it's available, it's just maybe not currently on the car. I think that a big thing when it comes to modifications, and cable television has kind of done this to the world. Uh-oh. People will watch these television shows where they take this car mm-hmm. and they modify everything with a team of 30 guys and they do it in two weeks and they sell the car for $125,000. People think that they can recreate that in their garage with, I don't want to say no skill, but with their amateur garage and their amateur tools and their amateur skills Mm -hmm. and wonder why it hasn't added that value to their car because it doesn't actually add the value to their car. A lot of times you can take something and go too far. Mm -hmm. Very easily. And now you've detracted tons of value from the car because you haven't taken it far enough. Yep. It's hard to explain. Like you've taken it too far, but not far enough. Whereas a couple little bolt on things here and there, your dual master cylinder, your calipers from drums, Mm -hmm. you know, your arguably your rated lines, your wheels and tires, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe you upgraded to a quicker ratio steering box. Those kind of individual things are fine, but a lot of people take the car and they go just too far. And they've made these modifications that are irreversible now, mm-hmm. but they haven't gone to the next level to build a full dialed in hot rod. And that car just now kind of exists in a world of like, yeah, it's kind of neat, but you built it for yourself. It's to your taste. It doesn't have enough cool stuff to make it worthwhile to the next guy. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of now in the middle. You've gone <laughs> sort of limbo or nether Yeah, ex- exactly. You've, you've, you've gone too far. Or you haven't gone far enough, and that's that whole like. It's it's hard to explain it, but it is. You, I think you, you would know you if you see saw a it. car and you know it, right? You know, you you look at the way something's constructed, and you're like, well, this guy was obviously learning to weld when he did this, and mm. while it might be structurally just fine, it's not pretty, and it's going to ruin the value versus that custom shop that on television looked all pristine and pretty and made it perfect and. Because they had 16 different modifications have to be done right. It has to be done right. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of uh, shops and uh, along all of these uh, lines, uh, I I've just been really wanting to tell you guys um, there was this shop that I went to. I did a profile on them uh, several years ago uh, in Texas called Wagon Master. Mm -hmm. And you know, as you can tell by their name, they specialize in restoring, upgrading Jeep Grand Wagoneers. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, I think. Going back to the uh, the specific uh, model year or span, you know, they did them all, but the most popular and the, from what I remember, the highest priced models that they sold were the final year models, the 91s, because yep. those yeah, seem the, to... They're the most valued, honest, for a stock Jeep, they're the most valued, too. Yeah, wagon here. So yeah. that makes sense. And uh so yeah, they they uh they sold a lot of those and one thing that they did a lot, I think, um part of their whole treatment, you know, you'd get the new uh you know, faux wood grain veneers on the outside and then, you know, redo the interior and everything. But one thing they offered um was converting from carburetor to fuel injection. And given yep. the values of the vehicles that they sell, I don't think, you know, swapping from carburetor to fuel injection hurt the value. I think it, so I think it helped a, a shop like wagon masters is a, 
little bit different of a story because that's the professional shop where true, their true, name yeah, that alone. That is a caveat. Yeah, their name alone brings value to the yeah, car. Boy, yeah, boy, I wish we were does. talking about radio flyers right now. Yeah. <laughs> yes, wrong wagons. <laughs> yeah, their their name alone brings the value because they, they, they're known to build this vehicle to a certain standard. Yeah. And I think fuel injection is a great example of what we didn't bring up because the same thing, if you have a car with fuel injection and somebody wants to buy that car to use it sure it's going to add value to them again now if you do that to your numbers matching big block car you're hurting maybe it. not a great idea but yep. they built a lot of 350 cars right and so by upgrading it you're increasing that reliability with fuel injection and in some cases horsepower even sure. and so it just becomes kind of generally Effic- efficiency and reliability mm-hmm. yeah. for sure which is a big deal but, and that's the wagon master's big thing is they they do just just restore those and you know it's kind of like you know icon and fj you know he's going to modify the crap out of that car but he's going to go to the far enough and wagon masters goes to the far enough they pass that too far and go to far enough right and that's the that's the distinction between your average backyard build while some builds in the backyard are great and they go far enough but we see a lot of the cars that are just too far and not far enough and that's i think that's def- the the distinction i was trying to make between the backyard mechanic and your wagon masters or your icon vehicles or your singer was even over the top even further well i, I wanted the safety feature pointed out there not so much yeah. the you know how much they cost let's push that aside yeah exactly all, all all three of those brands we just talked about are well above a normal fj or wagoneer those or are enthusiasts 911. yeah they're very they're their own sort of i guess they're beyond enthusiasts. cottage industries. Yeah, exactly. Right. So they're beyond enthusiasts. We're all enthusiasts. Those are just enthusiasts with much deeper pockets. So for the sake of time, the last topic, which I think is pretty straightforward, um, the only problem with this is it's very subjective. Um, so vehicle notoriety. So what I mean by that is documentation supporting the vehicle's history and maybe things like ownership history or even I would go so far to say heritage um, such as things like racing. Um, is it a cult favorite car? Is it famous yeah. in media? That type of stuff. Like, why is a DeLorean worth what a DeLorean's worth? Right. Because it was in a movie. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Why yeah, is a G20 van with a red stripe and a black and silver top and bottom worth more? Because A-Team. You know, there's... <laughs> Especially if it's the vehicle from the well, franchise. Well, I mean, that's even... That's but, whole... but it's something that adds value that on the surface it might look like every yeah, other DeLorean at, or it might look like at every At that other point, van. you're talking about actual... That goes beyond automotive value. I think most value. people know that yeah, at that point. That goes beyond automotive value. That's movie memorabilia. memorabilia value. That's a whole different... The car itself isn't worth that. It's the caveat that it was in the movie. Right. It is. Yeah, it's right. a whole different so, story. Right. Um, one of the examples I really wanted to point out is we had a period-raced 1964 Pontiac GTO 4-speed. Yep, that's a salmon-colored that's car we the talked about earlier. Car. And this car, it wasn't owned by anybody famous... But it was very well, well, sorry, not famous to us. We didn't know him. He could have been a local hero. He wasn't a celebrity. Yeah. Right. And so what he did do is he did very well document his time drag racing the car in California um, back when he bought the car. So there are all sorts of period correct photos, drag time slips, all that stuff. And that really contributes to the car's history 100 percent. and so while you know granted the, the color is a little bit rare it was a one-year color mm-hmm. but i wouldn't say that would you know justify the car for being more significant than another 64 gto no, but the, the cool, history the, does the cool thing about that car was the history the fact mm-hmm. that he had the registration paperwork for the winter nationals he had the yep. registration paperwork for 
to wear nationals from every year. He did it from 1964 when the car was brand new mm-hmm. until what, 1977? Like the car was raced a ton. It, it was parked in 1977, I want to say, and they left the original drag slicks that they were still using in 77 mm-hmm. in the trunk and they were still included with the car. Like paperwork that was mailed to him from the NHRA, photos of the car racing in 1964, 65, 68, 70, 72. Like that kind of history is irreplaceable. And I think we talked about that last episode when we talked about building the story of the car. We did. That's mm-hmm. somebody who built the story of that car from before it was even the thing that you thought to do. Since 1964, the story of that car has been building. And unfortunately, it did not sell on our site. Um, but it's not any fault of the car. It's just that the right buyer for that car is going to pay the extra money for that Which car. Which is why I said it's somewhat subjective. Yeah, it's very subjective. But the right buyer will pay a premium for that car because of that history. And if I had the premium in my pocket, I'd have bought that car because that's a super cool story. Yeah, I'd, love, all- I'd, I'd love to be the next custodian of that car and tell that story to everybody. Oh, That'd yeah. Amazing. And I mean, the color, since we brought it up several times cool. throughout the episode, yeah, there were notes from him. Originally, he had ordered the car thinking it was a different shade. Right. So when he you know, got his car from the dealership, he yeah, he was very disappointed yeah. with, with the way the color looked, but he kept it that way anyways. He kept even though salmon I was, colored race car. Yeah, I believe there's photos of the car where it had a different uh, livery it on the side of the car. It did have hand-painted graphics. On yeah, at one point when yeah. it was racing so very cool yeah very um, cool car but well, i we... think that wraps the top it up t- the, the wraps the topic up i think it'd be remiss if we didn't do our uh every episode deal here where we all pick our favorite car currently available on the site and i think last week i started with derek so this week we're going to start with jeff oh i'm so excited okay so this was actually um Something that I was so excited about as soon as I started going through it. There is a yellow 1999 Plymouth Prowler with the trailer. I love this car. I know a lot of people talk about how it's kind of disappointing that it came with a V6 instead of a V8 when it was originally built. But I think these cars are great because it's the fact that it's factory produced. Yeah, just and looks like it. a hot rod. Right. That's yeah. what I'm saying. These cars are amazing in terms of just like this was produced by the factory are you kidding me i i can't argue i can't argue with the how did this happen but i can also flip that around and change my tone and say how did that happen (laughs) well that was my point earlier but to be fair i think everything about the car is perfect in terms of what they decided to go with um because i think the wheels are great obviously it's got uh, a good bit of deep dish i love that the trailer is basically the back half of the car i think they just checked all the right boxes and i love these cars i remember having a model of the purple launch color when i was younger sure. and so there's also a little the bit Ravel model that value. came with the trailer or the amt uh, model because both of them yeah. made one i don't remember if it had a trailer or not but anyway. i definitely remember the car but that's my pick it's uh, i think it's fantastic I, I love this car i'm glad you do um i hope one day you live your pt cruiser dream oh, or no prowler <laughs> prowler oh pt cruiser convertible <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm not. I shouldn't. I shouldn't be talking down the car. It's a personal preference. I don't love Prowlers. Um, I understand their significance. They are a like you said. How did this happen? How did a factory build this car and greenlight it and go from like the concept to production? Mm-hmm. It's super cool. In the time when this car came out, I was in high school and wanted nothing but like yeah every car is going to be a hot rod muscle car v8 great and it didn't come out that way and it disappointed me greatly so i don't love them 
I will not, however, have an opinion about your opinion. I will say, I will allow you to have your opinion. Mm. As a car goes, they're not a bad vehicle. They're a modern vehicle, fuel injected, air conditioning, I'd be power so bold windows, to say this car airbags, started the retro safety. Yeah, maybe this other Beetle. They're both in well, the same era. The Mustangs didn't get reverted until 05. Yeah, but the, the Beetle. SSR didn't come out till later. Beetle was 98. Mm. And the Viper, I think, was 96. So, uh, it, it, not, not Viper. Viper. No, Viper started it. Prowler what? was 96. Viper was like 93. I and don't know if a, I'd say the Viper started the retro comeback. It was the throwback to the Cobra. Uh, this is a whole other I mean, conversation. You, Table that. Yes. Table yeah, that. You can Shelby's involvement, all that, blah, 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 blah. Table blah, that. Right. Next Table thing. that. I will. 100%. Happily. Because, yeah, that's... We're going to do a little more research and have a little more conversation about that. But that 100% that is a retro car. All right. All right. I respect your opinion. I don't agree with it. It's but it's guy. no knock on the car. I've just never been a huge fan. Derek, what is your pick of the week? Well, and I didn't... Now, you guys showed your hand because earlier you were saying, oh, I think I know what Derek's going to pick. And I did not do this last to week. spite you. No, you did that... We kind of always do it. All right, fine. Yeah. Um, but, I think we know Derek. I guess we don't. Yeah. Uh, I did not do this to spite you all, but um, I really am digging on this 17-mile 94 Impala SS. I can see that. Hmm, yeah. You think that could be a value differentiator, something that might increase the value? Yeah, that's right, on, so. that's right on topic miles? this week, for Perfect. sure. Perfect. Take a yeah. choice, Derek. I yeah. applaud you, but that's a very cool car. You can't go wrong with those. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's cool. They have a cool road presence. They oh, kind yes, of float down do. the road. They do. While also being like menacing looking. Yeah, I they think are. A yeah. lot of people today overuse, like they call their white and black car Stormtrooper or their black yes. car, oh, you know, gosh. Vader's car. The, but... The Impala SS, the original ad campaign was Lord Vader, your car is ready. So they started that whole thing. So mm. you're allowed to use it for the Impala SS. So yeah, Lord Vader, your fits. car is ready. Yeah, it's it's a cool car. Yes. I wouldn't have mm-hmm. with it. I had a very hard time choosing a car this week. Yes. I'm not I'm not gonna lie. Um and it's only because I have a certain bar that my cars have to pass to own them and the bar is very low and i think every okay, car yeah. every car on the site this week is too high to pass my my standard low mm. bar um that being said there's a 1967 austin healy 3000 yes that's a um, good one it's gorgeous yep. I, I, love think, british, I think all three of us yeah at that. i love yep. british cars i love inline six cars i love roadsters of the era i love wire wheels the two-tone mm-hmm. I, I mean there's nothing not to like about it yeah it's, it's a great car yeah it's it's classy I love small British cars and even ones that are even a little more classy, like a Helio 3000 are, it's a good car. I'm, yeah. I'm a fan. And that color yeah. combo in particular, I mean, that blue with the cream is just beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's gorgeous. Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I grew up in a world of, you know, American cars, but we also, I also always had exposure to British sports cars. So yeah, I always had this like local little British car club. Yeah. yeah. A little bit of a connection to them. And these are obviously you know, more valuable than an MGB or a Spitfire or the kind of car I grew up with. But I've always liked them. And any car with an inline six is okay in my book. I love the sound of an inline six. They're all so silky smooth. Yeah. They just sound so good. But, but it's important to point out as the corporate chill that we, all of these cars are currently live on autohunter.com and there's plenty more to take a look at that are all up for auction. So you absolutely. can own these cars that we are talking about. It's just a matter of heading to auto 
autohunter.com, creating a profile and checking the cars out and placing a bid. Yep. It says that on your business card, right, Jeff? Uh, uh, corporate show. It does, actually. That's my full posi- full-time <laughs> yeah. position. I feel that was required to uh, be a podcast host, was corporate show. Uh, yes. yes. Yes, it was. Anyway, yes, autohunter.com, classiccars.com. Visit both sites. Mm-hmm. Tons of cars to see. As I've said many times before, if you go to autohunter.com, each car has a whole story written about it by mm-hmm. Derek and his team of excellent writers that mm-hmm. reads like a magazine article and really uh, teaches you a lot about the cars. So mm-hmm. come visit us there. Shoot us an email if you want to chat about something. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know what we should do? We should probably talk about this off air, but we should get an email address just for the we podcast so people can send us comments and questions and all the I good agree. stuff. So it's a good idea. All right. Well, until next time. Does anybody else have any parting words? Nope. Thanks Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks. We'll We'll catch you next time. And until then, drive the bid. Drive the bid. (laughs) Happy auctioning. (laughs) 